0: You make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger.
1: Become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult.
0: Welcome to Entertainment Business
1: Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander.
0: Welcome, welcome, everybody. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast. Here with my special guest today, our special guest today, Lee Jessup. She's a career coach for screenwriters. She specializes in guiding emerging and professional scribes toward longstanding and prolific screenwriting careers in both TV and feature writing. She also provided consulting services to NBC International and the Universal Writers Program. Her coaching clients include everyone from showrunners and A-list studio writers to contest winners, TV writing fellows, and writers just starting out. She is a consultant for Final Drafts, Big Break Contest, and the author of several best-selling books, Breaking In, Tales from the Screenwriting Trenches, and Getting It Right W-R-I-T, An Insider's Guide to Screenwriting Career. Lee Jessup, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so happy that you're here with us. You you came to us through our mutual friend, Jen Grisanti. Jen is amazing.
1: and Anytime she says you should meet a person, I'm instantly there.
0: Oh, she's been such a beloved guest uh, for us, for all of our students, and with so much wisdom and expertise. How did you guys meet?
1: We met through work a million years ago. I think I reached out to her. She reached out to me, and it was like, let's go have coffee. We had coffee, fell in love,
0: and the rest is history. Oh, I love that. You, know, you and I have a similar background in that we were both development execs before heading on to the career path that we're on now. Would you tell us about that path for you? Sure. So I'm actually a film producer's kid,
1: um, so I grew up on film sets. And uh, when I was 16, my father decided to share with me that we are the one family in Hollywood that does not do nepotism, uh, so don't expect a job. Um, so just to show them that I could do it all on my own, I'm just fine, um, I went out and I got my first uh, production job as a production coordinator on a film that was then funded by AFI. AFI used to give $250,000 grants um, for to its You know, kind of winning student to go and make a film. So, my first film was that. And it was back in the day when you spent $250,000 and actually shot on film and, and, you know, the good old days. Um, From there, I went on to do a bunch of production back to back, started writing, always had been writing. So, it felt like a natural uh, progression. Wrote a script, was lucky enough to get it set up. Um, only to find out that I really did not like the experience of of a working writer. Um, But development sounded great. So I moved over to development, uh, work development for a good number of years, but ultimately found that my loyalty was more to the writer, which is a problem when the writer's not paying your bills and the production company is. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I kind of stepped away to rethink it all because I, I really, I lost sleep over options that we were letting lapse and and things like that, that were happening that are natural to the life of a, of a production company projects. We were dropping projects that we were letting go of. Those were really the things that stayed with me at that time, right? The the people that I felt that I let down in some way. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to have something that was a little bit more sane, less guilt-ridden, um, And so I went and I ran a small company called uh, ScriptShark for a period of time. But I found there that, you know, we were scouting scripts that received a uh, specific grade, pass, consider, recommend. And I found that writers were making the same mistakes trying to break in as I saw them making when I was a development executive meeting with writers you know, every given day. And those same mistakes that I myself was afraid of making when I was lucky enough to have a script picked up. And so I really became passionate about educating writers about the business side of the industry. Um, Back then I started a seminar series uh, with Final Draft that we took all over the country. The New York Times actually sponsored for us. Um, So I really started talking to writers then in a pretty focused fashion about what I'm seeing, the mistakes the writers are making, the ABCs of kind of working your way into the industry, what's expected, what's not expected, what will benefit you. Um, And that really was the start of my coaching because then writers started reaching out to me and asking strange questions like, how do I book you? And I was a little confused by that because (laughs) I, I... didn't set out to be a career coach. Frankly, I didn't know that was a job. My father will still argue that it might not be a job. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that's how I started coaching. I had a slew of private clients when I decided to take this public, um, and it became a full-time job within three months. Um, and I've been working with writers one-on-one exclusively ever since, At this time, you know, I I rotated any one time anywhere between 125 and 150 clients. Uh, A lot of it has to do with the fact that many clients are in rooms and working on assignments. So there's uh, less upkeep while they are in those situations, unless, of course, something breaks. Uh, But yeah, I've been now 10 years working, uh, offering my business publicly um, and working with some amazing writers, which have has made it just the funnest ride ever. That
0: is so cool. I, you know, I'm not sure if a lot of newbies realize how valuable it is for working pro writers, for any writer to have that sounding board, that person who they can take their scripts to discuss stuff that might not be working and be able to like lay it all out on the operating table and be like, you know, help me with this process. Would you talk a little bit more about your process in working with the writers? Sure. So I generally focus
1: on the career side of things. I'm a big believer that there is no career to be built without great writing. Um, so while I don't do what Jen does, Jen really kind of gets into the nuts and bolts of every word and every page. Um, I read scripts all the time and, and tend to look at it more from a market perspective, right? Not all, story falls in there inevitably. Yes. If the story's not working, for example, yesterday I talked to a writer. Uh, who had sent me a script that was a very expensive script, um, but the story logic didn't work. And we ultimately had to look at it and say, okay, you're, you're writing the story that conceptually, in my mind, is flawed, but then you're asking for a $100 million budget for something like that. It's huge. It's big effects. From page one, We we see a lot of just a lot of money on the screen. Um, so I look at it both for story and for market. And I had to say to the writer, listen, I understand it's a writing sample, but the reality is when executives are reading, reading or managers or agents are reading, cause he's looking for attention, um, and looking to get signed on that side of things, they're looking to run to see whether or not the writer understands the mandates of the industry. And the reality is that while we do make very expensive movies, they usually have some IP behind them. They're, they're, rarely specs that come into the space. Um, and so this is a reason for an exec or a rep to put a script down and say the writer doesn't understand the mandates of the industry. Um, so I look at everything from who the writer is, their brand, their what is their body of work? Is it built out enough? What do we need in it? For those writers that are starting out and then on and on, we look at Representation, we look at what's working, what's not working. We're looking where the writer is, where the writer wants to go. What's unique to my job is there really is a different process with every writer because every writer is entirely unique in what they want to do, what they bring to the table, um, their history, their lived experience, all of that that is so important. So the fun of my job is really getting to know the writer, which I do through an extensive questionnaire and then a one-on-one meeting, and then starting to really think about what are the next steps for this individual. You know, luckily I've had people now stay with me for 12 years um, and keep me around, which is great. So we continue to grow career together um, and address challenges and continue to grow and continue to think about what what is the career we're aiming for versus what is the career that we think we should be able to have.
0: Sounds like you're a strategist. I am. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like that's often missing, especially among writers, you know, who feel like, well, I'll just throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. And really without that strategy, it's uh, very hard to land on your feet in this industry.
1: Absolutely. There's the, what are you doing? But then there's, why are you doing what you're doing? Right. What is the purpose? What is the reason behind it? And I think that, you know, prior to 2008 representation looked quite different managers we're you know, holding a list of like 10, 12, 15, maybe 20 clients if they're super busy and ambitious. Today, we're just not in that place, right? The industry's changed so severely. Most reps, not every reps. We have some upper level reps that are handling very, very big literary talent and therefore need 10 clients and they're fine. But the majority of representation specifically on the management side now holds a much bigger list. And because of that, there's just no
0: bandwidth for strategy. Yeah. Even hundreds, you know, if a manager has hundreds of clients, how much attention, you know, is one writer really getting? And the answer is like, not a lot.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, once you are a huge writer, right, once you you've reached that status, their job effectively becomes to take care of you and take care of your career plan and strategy. But until getting to them and and I don't fault them for it. And for the record, I know a ton of people in representation that I hold in the highest respect. Um, But, you know, we're really in an age where a writer has to have their own plan, right, has to know what they're aiming at and push towards that and kind of be their own rep before a rep is you know, at the table with them and then continue building on that. So my role is to be, you know, counselor, advisor, cheerleader, therapist, friend, drill sergeant, and very much strategist. I'm a planner by nature, so I I always think a few steps ahead. Um, So that's why the job kind of works for me.
0: sounds like you have a ringside seat to both um, things going really well and the the celebrations that your writers will have, but also to the stumbles. Oh, uh, would, would you talk us through some of the mistakes that you see writers commonly make that come up again and again in that you visual you see in your career? Sure. I mean, you're right. My job is very
1: much the agony and the ecstasy. like there's no question there. And breaking in is something that's really difficult takes time. i I have a screenwriter support group. We had a special guest last night. Amadou Diallo who is a brilliant wonderful writer who broke in really fast right from his first pilot to his first job it was about you know 2 years it was crazy um and he himself talked about mistakes that we see writers make i think the first mistake that writers make for me is putting some sort of cap on it right i'm going to write one script i'm going to put in 2 years and then let it go the reality is that it doesn't it usually takes much longer than that amadou is is a very rare example. We see that, you know, for writers to break in takes five, 10, sometimes 12 or 15 years. I'm not saying that's going to happen to everybody and some writers don't break in. Right. So I, I think that if you're going for it, you have, it's kind of like falling in love, right? You have to give your all into it and you have to immerse yourself in your writing and the choice to pursue this as a career, um, entirely until, you know, either you break in or until you decide, you know, this is not for me anymore. And that's a fair decision, right? Not everybody has to break in and you're allowed to change your mind. So I think, you know, kind of coming in with restrictions um, usually doesn't bode well because then, you know, even if the writer writes a great script that nets him a meeting with a manager, I've certainly been told by manager friends, oh, I met with this writer, but they told me that they're with me for two years. And if I don't get them a job, then they're going to jump ship. Well, then I'm done. I'm not even starting this because I know how much it's, how long it's going to take. You know, kind of not putting the emphasis on the years, how long does it take is incredibly important. One writer that I work with. Um, shared with me that she she was told that it's gonna it's gonna take what it takes but she didn't really think about it until she was so far in that stepping away seemed insane she was and truly you know i think a year after that she got staffed and has been working as a staff tv writer ever since um another writer that i interviewed a few years ago now for final draft. Um, Claudia Forresteri that has the Gordita Chronicles that's being developed over at HBO Max talked about the fact that everybody always talked about the time. And she always thought about, you know, the time is horrible. How long, you know, they really expect me to try for this for such a long time. But at the end of the day, it took her, I believe, nine years to get to a place where she was, she became a working writer and she's been working nonstop. So it takes what it takes and it is, it's important to understand it, um, And it's important to then decide, is it worth it for you to kind of jump in for this extended amount of time to try for a career change or a new career? Um, You know, so that's definitely something that I see probably one of the biggest mistakes um, is sending material out to the industry before it's ready. Um, You know, and and I find that a lot of, of writers who are earlier in their career tend to like, oh, I did it. I feel so good about it. And you should. And it's something to celebrate. And I'm not knocking it. But in order for it to be industry ready, we wanted to go through, you know, some vetting. We want people that are better, smarter, wiser to take a look at the work and see it's working. It's not working. Here's where it's tracking for me. Um, So those things are always incredibly important. I think also another mistake is just coming in with the wrong expectations, right? A lot of people hear about the spec boon of the 90s, right? And I'll talk to a lot of writers. They'll say like, oh, I want to sell a feature or two a year. I have one writer that I work with who's only made money selling specs and he is an absolute unicorn in that. Um, you know, the majority of how writers make money in the industry today is writing pages, right? It's doing writing assignments staffing into a writer's room, even writing the screenplay based on the pitch that they sold. That becomes an assignment right there. They are hired to do this. Um, so I think the idea of selling, Um, is an idea that belongs, you know, some decades ago. It's not to say that we don't still sell sell scripts, but we've stopped talking about um, spec scripts as how many sales are we having a month. We're talking about them as getting set up. If you look at tracking board and it's, you know, it's quarterly report and annual reports, of specs. we're talking about scripts getting set up. We're not talking about them selling because the the transaction, right? The exchanging of of cash for script, um usually with a setup will have will happen much later, right? TV is where you get paid faster, but it's really, really hard to break in. My pet peeve is writers coming into this without understanding what it is. I mean, I talk to, somebody who moved down from Canada with her family because she heard there's a lot of action in TV, doesn't have the ready pilots, feels that, you know, why, why don't I get staffed? And I understand that because there's definitely messaging out there. There's so much work, Uh, but there's also a ton of writers. And the flip side is that rooms have gotten smaller Um, in recent years. We're doing a lot more mini rooms. We're not writing alongside with production it's not to say a breaking in is not possible. It's not to say that scripts can't get set up. They can, but the industry has changed. And I think it's really important for writers to understand the industry they're trying to break into because That is going to show up when they talk to representation. That is going to show up when they take general meetings. That's going to show up when they're at a party at their parents' house who happens to know the dude around the corner whose son is dot, 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 who's at that party with them, and they're talking about the career that they want. So I do think it's really important for writers to understand that they are the heads of their own business and really understand the landscape
0: in which they're trying to build said business. Makes a lot of sense. That common mistake of, you know, hearing about an industry that was maybe the way it was five years ago or 10 years ago and thinking that it's still that way. I was a development exec in 2005, 2006 when features were huge. And it was like, and they were so siloed, television and features. They were, they were, ne'er did they cross, you know, it was like movie stars did not go into TV and TV stars had a hard time getting over to being movie stars. And, um, I was working with a company that was then called Inferno. They're now known as Lotus Entertainment. And we were, you know, partnered with New Line and, and co-financing like four, features a year. And it's an interesting time now, but with streaming and everything else, it seems like one of the biggest changes that I've seen at least uh, take place since I've been in the industry is the rise of these tentpole movies, theatrical necessity, huge, huge films hitting the theaters and the art house theaters drying up. And, you know, these wonderful, sweet, adorable features that used to come out every year into the theaters um, and the exhibit, exhibitors just disappearing.
1: Yeah, listen, I mean, over, over here in L.A., Landmark and Arclight closed. Landmark's talking about finding another location. But, I mean, you were developing before 2008, right, where ultimately so many things changed, um, you know, as you well know, as and I'm sure your students do as well, Um, you know, a lot of the changes in the screenwriting landscape end up coalescing with a strike, right? And it was the 2008, 2007, 2008 strike. And what happens during these periods is just, it allows for time of assessment, right? But I think 2007, 2008 is also significant because that was really when we started seeing the straight to video model go away. Like in the early 2000s, there were a ton of companies that had deals with Blockbuster or whomever um, for 10, $500,000 movies for straight to bit. I mean, it was just such an, a, a successful market in its own right. That's completely disappeared. We went away from the movie star model to more of the Harry Potter model, right? We're looking for that IP. We're looking for that kind of earned audience that will walk in, into the theater with you. Um, you know, a big change that happened between the nineties and now is that in the nineties, all studios were privately owned. Now Disney's the only one, Disney can do whatever it wants, Mm -hmm. but there is corporate mandate now behind every major studio, which is why we're suddenly seeing, you know, the growth of the DCs and the Marvels and whatnot, because there's just the running and gunning of the 90s, kind of the the wild west of it all in the early 2000s of there's a great spec, somebody's going to buy it, whether or not it gets made, we'll see, but it's great. And therefore, you know, for you know, a week's time, everybody's gonna be talking about it and excited about it and seeing what happens. It's just a different universe. We stopped consuming content the same the same way that we did back then. Um, obviously the pandemic changed a lot of it, um, you know, killed Quibi just as it just as it arrived because the right. the business model was just flawed for a period of time where the audience is looking for more time in front of screens, not Content in 10 minute increments. So it, it's a fascinating industry because it keeps changing, right? It's eternally dynamic. Um, so, for somebody like me who likes data and information in, in that way, it's fantastic. I'm a
0: professional industry observer. Yeah, I'm a nerd too, in the same <laughs> capacity. Talk to me about some of your predictions. We've had an interesting couple of years. We've had the pandemic, the Will Smith slap at the Oscars, Netflix's stock tanked. Where do you think this is going?
1: Listen, I think we're—you know—we're all waiting with uh, kind of bated be- breath to see w- how things continue to evolve at. Netflix, I can tell you I have clients who are developing at Netflix. They're still very much developing content. They're not going anywhere. Um, there was a blip. It may evolve into a significant stumble. There was expectation they'll lose another about 2 million subscribers, which is not pretty, but they're not out of the game so quickly, right? I think, I think it's being used as an excuse on the Netflix front to make some cuts and some changes, but we're seeing cuts and changes across the board. I mean, we're recording this right after Upfronts. CW just canceled a bunch of shows where you're just going, what's happening? But CW is also positioning for a sale. So one probably has something to do with the other. CBS was, you know, know, is doing what it's doing. Networks are doing what they're doing. I don't foresee networks um, growing. They've been retracting for a good number of years now because they're not providing the same content that your average viewer is looking for. They tend to, to cater to a different market. Can they pivot? They can, but, you know, CBS became Paramount, or became launched Paramount Plus. They used to be CBS All Access. It's just a branding change, just saying. Um, NBC now has Peacock. The idea is to, to try and compete um, as much as they can. It, ultimately, some years ago, I was asked, you know, by 2023, is it just going to be Netflix and Disney? No, we're launching more and more, Will there be a retraction in 10 years? Will it look differently in 10 years? Probably yes. Um, I don't anticipate everybody that everybody will be able to remain standing. All the streamers that we have out there, there'll be some collaborations and acquisitions and we'll see how all of that goes. Um, you know, I do think that CODA was a great win for those of us who like the smaller, more lyrical movies. For me, those were the movies I was most afraid to see go, Mm. right? And and more likely to go. And we're seeing that with Arclight closing and Landmark closing, kind of like these um, institutional LA theaters where you go to see the smaller films, the international films. I think those are at risk. Um, The reality that, you know, we've had a number of pretty big box office openings, even with a pandemic and people still being gun-shy about going to movie theaters, I don't think movie theaters are in, in kind of by and large are going anywhere. We are suffering on the indie for, uh, foreign film front, but I think those will find their place in time. Not just yet. I think we're going through an adjustment. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, I think we're, we're, movies are never dead. You know, if I had a dollar, you're, you're like me, you've been around for a while. If we had a dollar for every time that we heard about the death rattle of cinema, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> very rich very very rich <laughs> I know. i've been reading those vanity fair articles since
0: like 1992 it's so a splashy uh, splashy attention getting headline that has never really held up that's for sure yeah. <laughs> movies are still here we're still going to the movies
1: isn't challenging yes our exhibit uh, our exhibition platforms struggling yes not not kind of discounting that at all, but movies are still here. How we're perceiving them, how we are taking them in may change. And, you know, we're seeing more content go to, you know, straight to streamers now rather than straight to video. Um, you know, what's really suffered is the straight to video title, right? Yeah. Remember
0: DVDs? Yep. Remember going <laughs> to Blockbuster and like dropping stuff off. Yeah. I know. Right. I have been idiots. I mean, in LA, we had videos. Yeah. which was just so great. I, I miss the 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 bonuses. I miss the extras in the DVDs. And I feel yep. like a, a smart streaming platform is going to incorporate all those into uh, the movies that we're watching. Because, you know, we want to see the outtakes and we want to see the behind yeah. the scenes and we want to hear the director's commentary. I know I do. And I, I really miss a lot of that. I hope that it comes back somewhere.
1: Listen, I think that the, the world of film fandom is still there. Um, we're just going to have to see how it all plays out. Yeah,
0: I know it. I know it. How do you see all this, uh, this change affecting writers? Well, content continues to be made. Um, are things
1: more difficult for writers? They always are. I mean, we actually coming through the pandemic was a fascinating time because the only group that could keep working was writers. Um, it influenced the end of the fight between the WGA and the ATA, the association of talent agencies, Um, that refused to sign the franchise, the new franchise agreement for, with the WGA, that sunsetted the 3% packaging fee and affiliated productions, all of that, you know, you suddenly saw March, April, May of 2020, you saw the holdout suddenly showing up and starting conversations because nobody could work. I mean, on the flip side of that, my writers that had stuff in negotiations were, you know, were waiting for paperwork for weeks, sometimes months, sometimes many months. Everything closed by the end of May 2020 to get the writers to work. Because no directors couldn't work, actors couldn't work, nobody could work. Right. Um, so it was a fascinating moment. Obviously, we changed how we make TV, going from in-person rooms to Zoom rooms. I'm starting to hear about more and more in-person rooms going back, which I think is important. It's never easy for writers, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's always tough. And I talk to my clients who remind me how tough it is. Um, you know, even when working in the industry, but I find that good writing rises to the top. I find that writers that have a very specific point of view, doesn't have to be, you know, a type of point of view, but a, a specific point of view that is true to them, writers who write authentically. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's impossible. We can talk about that all day, all day long, but my job is actually a really happy job. And that's because I get to see writers break in and build careers and push to the next level all the time. Are there frustrations and heartbreaks and difficulties and, you know, nervous breakdowns? Yes, absolutely. It's not going to be easy. But the good news for me is that we continue to see writers break in. We continue to see careers being built. We're seeing a move to continue to grow the management landscape. Which is a heavily commissioned landscape, more so than agenting, right? In the world of agenting, there's some sort of a salary plus some semblance of commission plus bonus structure. Most managers who come in got, come in on commission alone, and we're getting more and more management companies popping up. What does that tell us? That tells us that there's money to be made there. Now, most people that are coming into management are not coming in with a huge list. Yes, there's been a, a migration in the last year of a lot of agents that decided, you know, I'm not going to be able to collect any part of the 3% packaging fees. It's going to hurt my my bottom line just on, you know, my day-to-day life. So I'm going to move over to management. But we're also seeing new managers coming in that don't have a history in agenting, that don't bring a list of clients with them, that aren't automatically getting paid, that I think is really telling about the fact that, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's, you know, it's all the things that you hear, but new managers are finding ways to monetize new writers. That means new writers are getting to be working writers. So there's opportunity
0: there is what I hear you saying. Yeah.
1: It's never been more competitive. There are more and more writers coming in. You really have to push the quality of the writing. You really have to think about the concept you're developing. You, you do have to show up, you know, close to a hundred at a hundred percent in terms of, the script, and then the writer, the writer, under, writers understanding of their own brand and voice, and what they, what is the value they bring to a project in terms of their lived experience. Um, but I think that those writers
0: are breaking through all the time. I love that. I love hearing that. And I, I founded the Entertainment Business School, similar reason to you, loving the business side of the industry, seeing mistakes that above the line creators can make. I always have a lot of writers in school. And, um, one of the things that I say that I see a lot is that writers are lone wolfing. They don't have a wolf pack. They need a wolf pack. They need to be reaching out to others in the industry to expand and make friends with producers and directors and build their relationships. Um, what other tips do you have for writers, especially maybe new writers who are, you know, determined and excited and maybe coming into the industry with fresh, wide open eyes. So first of all, just to build on what you said, the wolf pack,
1: um, I think it's really important for writers to not just network up, but network laterally. Absolutely. Um, so that they meet other writers so that they can come up together so that they have their their tribe, their community to celebrate the, the wins. Like being a, a semifinalist at Nickel doesn't mean anything to anybody who's not in this. But if you're a semifinalist in Nickel and you're a writer, it's going to mean a lot. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to celebrate that with people that understand the celebration. You need to be able to cry about all the frustrations. Um, but community is incredibly important. Um, other recommendations for new writers. you know, We find that writers learn screenwriting other than in a classroom or in a consultant by doing three things. One is obviously writing. Um, and in writing, I mean, getting also getting notes and getting notes from people that are smarter and really challenging the work. Um, but also what seems to get lost is reading scripts um, regularly. And by that, I mean, reading current scripts from the industry. So, you know, most of us have a Dropbox of scripts from the, the Blacklist, right? The Blacklist has two different parts. One's the list, one's the website and talking about the list we just voted on by industry execs, development execs, as you well know, Kaya, um, most everybody has those drop boxes. They'll like start looking for them, read what were the most liked scripts of 2021. And when you're done with those read 2020, um, you know, all too often I'll talk to writers who say like, Oh yeah, you know, this is kind of like wag the dog. So I read that script. I'm not saying don't read that script. I think it's great. Go watch the movie, know your comps, have your information, but that shouldn't be the only thing that you read. And you should have a sense of what the industry is responding to, what the industry is making, sometimes it will drive you nuts. That's okay. You're also allowed to hate it. I'm not saying read it and convert to the belief that all of this is the best stuff ever written. I can tell you, I've had writers on the blacklist that other writers would come to me and say, like, but did you read that script? Because I don't know how that got on. Um, I've, I've seen scripts that are beloved that were top one, two, three, that writers were like, that was the worst thing I've ever read. I've seen scripts that were at the bottom of the list where writers go like, how come that didn't go further? But understanding the various ways to tell a story in today's market is incredibly important. Um, watching content, watching content that that is specific to the genre or the area that you're writing in. Um, really important. You want to know your space. You want to become an expert in it. Whether you're writing, you know, really kind of outlandish horror films, or whether your your through line is, you know, dramatic character relationships within flawed families, right? Let's talk about those flawed families. Let's know the content there. Let's watch. Let's read. Let's listen. I mean, podcasting is huge. Um so I find that a lot of writers come coming in kind of do the like oh no I have to put my head down and just focus on my stuff. Um somebody said something to me once that is true can be taken in a really depressing manner. I don't think it's that depressing but the statement was writers are writing a, who are writing on spec are, are writing a product that nobody asked for. And I understand that, right? You're speculating. You're nobody asked for it. You're speculating that this is the right thing to be working on. But you you want to know why this is the right thing to be working on, right? You want to understand where it fits in the industry, what it builds on, where it belongs. Are we making those? Every once in a while, um, you know, I'll talk to somebody who, who shows up, who, who tells me like, oh, I want to write, and this this hasn't happened in a couple of years, but I do hear it on occasion. I hear it from other people. I want to write TV movies, the kind they used to show on NBC. NBC has not shown a TV movie in a very long time. They have not produced a TV movie in a really long time. We're no longer doing that, right? TV movies now are hallmark and lifetime. Right. Nothing wrong with that, but that that is a different side of the business. Um, so understanding the market that you're aiming for, what it does, how it works. For example, you know, don't write the hundred million dollar small family drama, right? You can't make coda for a hundred million dollars if you decide <laughs> to introduce fantastic realism and effects. It's just not, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so understanding the industry,
0: um, really important the market where you belong, where yep. the, what note this is coming in on, you know, who this is for, why it's, uh, why it's now, why it's mm-hmm. temporary. I would add too that, you know, you mentioned the importance of reading, the imp- importance of reading scripts. And I would add also reading produced scripts and recently produced scripts, whether that's in television or film so that you can also hold your own work up against it. And know also that as you read the work of others in your community, I'm really active on screenwriting, Twitter, as a lot of my colleagues are, you know, understand where those scripts, as you read them are matching up against produced scripts in the industry and just observing, what do I see? What are the differences? What do I see that worked here? What do I see that's not working and allow yourself to analyze those, that material, allow yourself to analyze it and notice where you get snagged. Notice what, stops you I mean we've all had the I think, experience too of watching stuff uh watching even major movies you know my son and I are watching um <laughs> we're watching Pirates of the Caribbean right now and it goes all the way through the whole franchise all these movies and it gets progressively more confusing and he's really <laughs> intelligent and he's like all about it and he's so excited and uh <laughs> and it's like okay well at some point somebody has to be willing to say, this is confusing to me. What what is it that's confusing? Let's let's open this up so that we can make sure that the confusion is taken care of before it gets in front of an audience who I think these days is going to be far less forgiving because they're at home. They have kids, they have the laundry, they have the distraction, uh, you know, they have porn. And there's all kinds of things that they can go to. They don't have to sit there and watch your thing. If your thing gets confusing or um convoluted or, you know, in any way, they're not sitting in a theater. They didn't buy a ticket, they didn't get in the car then drive all the way, you know, to the to the theater. Um so it is just a different era. I think the the era of, as my friend Richard likes to say, the era of slow burn television is behind us.
1: Yeah. Listen, it's things are continuing to shift and change. And like, like you said, yeah, people have options. People have tons of options. So you know really I I completely understand the writers that look at some studio fair and go, how'd this happen? Pirates of the Caribbean being at, prime example suicide squad yes um a bunch of other ones where you're like wait how did this happen these happen by you know kind of a different design which is we have a producing window with Will smith It's coming up now for the second time today uh but he was the he was the producing window for for uh, suicide squad mm-hmm. right in order to to engage him and to put him in this movie we have to start rolling on this date Therefore, we have to start prep on this date. Therefore, we have to have a script on this date. And we're going to bring in the best writers we can find and pray. Um, And I think it's unfair to put it all on the writer because the writer inevitably is working to the mandates of the studio in this scenario. Phenomenal deadlines, yeah. Yeah. So that's how those things happen because different things fall into the equation, right? Because if you don't engage Will Smith and you still want to engage Will Smith, you know, if you don't get them in that window, you're probably looking at two years out. Right. And that's a very tough decision for a studio that sees, you know, a summer opening for a big title that they haven't booked yet. Um, So there are a lot of things that go into the kind of the destruction of good movies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that for new writers, the logic, the story logic is incredibly important because much as viewers are incredibly um, inundated with every type of movie they could want to watch, including porn, instead of yours, for reps and executives, there is a huge read pile, right? Whether it's a physical pile or whether it's sitting on the iPad, all they're looking for is a reason to say, you know, no, I'm going to go to the next one because they're overwhelmed. We are in an industry that is chronically overextended, um, people are just looking for a reason. Like, okay, why? Can, how can I say no to this? Absolutely. It's too expensive. It's too big. It's out of time. There is no story logic. Yeah, you're going to put it down. Um, you know, I read something a few days ago where I had to say it to the writer that the initial the the scene on the three page scene on page seven ultimately made me believe that you don't know your characters. Mm. Everything they're saying doesn't track with the relationship that you set you set up. If I was an executive, I'm putting it down right there. Yeah. You got to not giving thought to your characters
0: It's so, it's so true. That the consistency of a character's voice and decision-making has to be all, has to ripple all the way through the script. You can't feel like they change halfway through. I think that's a big mistake that I see for newer writers. When I read scripts, I'm like, Hmm, the character that you set up for me on page one is now on page 30, making a decision that doesn't sound like who they are. Doesn't sound like the spitfire. You set them up to be yep. on page one and now they've gotten, you know, kind of maybe more flimsy by page 30. And then you're just that those, uh, those end up being stopping points, you know, and those end up being ultimately passes of course, uh, for execs in the industry. Yeah. I mean, another
1: thing that we see often, and I'm sure you've seen it a million times is writers inserting dialogue that is not true to the care who the character is or, or where they are in their individual journey simply to fill us in as an audience. You see those bits of dialogue. They're like, "Oh, you want me to know this backstory?" So that's why you're writing this conversation that would never take place between these two or three people. Mm-hmm. But you want me to know, and it's yeah. You know, and don't get me wrong. It's it's very hard to get that information delivered on screen. Right. This is why screenwriting is so challenging because you have to show, don't tell, and fill us in subtly rather than, let me tell you how this all began. Um, But I I see that a ton, and I think that the more you write, the more you find ways to kind of sneak it in um, without being too obvious about it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What
0: um? What have you loved that you've seen lately? Um,
1: is it Heartstopper? Heartstopper on Netflix. Okay, that's yes. in my watch queue. You loved it? It's just like four hours of loveliness. It's just four hours of sweet and nostalgic and heartwarming. Just made my day. Of course, Hacks is now back. So I'm watching that and I'm awesome. delighted Hacks is back. Yep. I'm so happy about that. I watch stuff all the time. And then I don't remember what the hell I watched. Um, <laughs> I'm working my way now. I'm waiting for the shine for shining girls and under the, the banner of heaven to finish their season. Um, I actually really liked, um, the, what was it called? Not the WeWork show, the, the Crash show. I thought it was, it definitely had me. It was definitely interesting. Um, Of course, Jared Leto plays an Israeli guy. I'm from Israel. So I had all sorts of reactions to that character. Oh, oh, my son is half Jewish. Well, there you go. So there you go. Yeah, there's just so much out there. Oh, another one that
0: I love was Minx. Man, oh I yeah. loved Manx. I just I'm totally finished, under the radar. But just finished so watching that. And uh, oh my God, it was just fantastic. I loved the stories and the performances. and it was a, I can't wait for season two. It's gonna be really interesting. And yeah, plus, it really it's fun because I grew up in Los Angeles, you know, and, and seeing LA in the era that I grew up in. Um, and those sofas, I'm like, oh my god, we had that sofa. <laughs> <It's like> so <laughs> funny. <laughs> it's fun to see. I, I love the um, contrast between her and her sister to that relationship that just feels so that just feels so real. That's such a yeah. Great show.
1: yeah it's such a great show. It's such a great throwback. It is, yeah, and it feels it like it really for me. It felt like it filled in
0: the space that Glow left behind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my gosh. You've been watching some heartwarming stuff. I I had gotten sick this week. And so I've been on on a drama tangent. I pretty much always watch comedy, dramedy, warmer stuff. And I got really into watching thanks to one of my students, Ryan Tokyo Vice. I sat there and binged Tokyo Vice, and I loved it. I love being transported into the realm of Tokyo in the 90s. I haven't been to Japan, and um, it just seems like such an incredible way to be uh, propelled into a culture and people and a location, a setting that I just really hadn't seen on screen before. I was trying to think, how many times have I seen Tokyo? you know in cinema in television and you know lost in translation comes to mind and a few others but like it was just that the city itself was such a character in that show and it was so gritty and so compelling and i loved the performances so much i i do really love these shows that are using the authentic language alongside mm-hmm. english as well yeah. where we're getting to hear you know so many more languages spoken and i was so glad for the win of parasite for that because now i feel like we have also so much more authenticity. Next up on my list is Pachinko, which I'm really excited to see. I hear fantastic things about it. And, uh, you know, I, I just will pretty much watch anything these days and I get even more excited when it's from somewhere else. Absolutely. And listen,
1: we're seeing this, uh, Acapulco that's on, uh, Apple plus, um, that my friend Sonya is
0: producing. No, it's Pachinko. fantastic. I watched the pilot. It was great. I haven't it's seen it. It's so ever. fun. It it's is so just so lovely. And yeah, absolutely. Great characters. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, there's just
1: so much programming. There's so much to watch, you know, that there's, I'm so behind on shows, which
0: is a great feeling. Um, (laughs) Oh, I have to ask you because I sometimes ask my guests this and I'm so curious, where do you keep your watch list?
1: Oh, and my, and my uh, notes app on uh, on my iPhone and on my computer. Absolutely. In okay. And your notes
0: app, right? Yeah, I mean, so right it, now, so have- I guess, like, keep it in a handwritten list at the bedside. I keep my notes IMDb. Days. I stick it on my watch list in IMDb. And so far, I'm the only person I know who does that. <laughs> see, I always have my computer and my phone. So right now, on the list is like Winning Time,
1: uh, Tokyo Vice, Slow Horses, Beyond the City, Shining oh, Girl. Slow Horses was great.
0: I, I can't wait to really see right it. Mm-hmm. Gaslight just Staircase is getting really good reviews, like lots to, lots to watch. Isn't it amazing? There's so there's so much to see. I have a 10-year-old also. You have kids too, don't you? 12 and 15, yeah. Oh, yeah, 12 and 15. I know, we've got a bar mitzvah coming up here too. Just did my daughter's last
1: weekend. Oh, last weekend. It was so fun. It was just a huge party. We had so much fun. That but is- actually, when you're talking about watching Pirates with your kid, I remember watching Chef with my daughter. And oh, she you and love Chef. My and son her thing was like, mom, it's an upside down movie. I was like, what do you mean it's an upside down movie? She's like, all the bad stuff happens to him in the in the beginning, and then he has a good time the rest of the movie. Usually, the best bad stuff happens
0: towards the end. And I was like, that's actually kind of astute. Very insightful. Very insightful. Sounds like your kid. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We love Chef. I remember how much he loved that movie, and it was one of. He was young when it came out too. I want to say he was like six. And that was the first time I realized he he loves cooking. I he gets that maybe more from his grandma than from me, but like he loves to be in the kitchen, he loves to be around the food, he loves to cook, and he just the, the movie felt really nourishing for his soul. It was super sweet. It's hard to find, you know. I feel like for me, I'm speaking out into the void. For those who are listening, um, I it is really hard to find great family movies and shows something that I can sit down and watch with my kid with his grandparents my parents like those three generation shows of like what what could actually speak to all of us and those are rare and we do go to the theater for those movies uh we've seen a lot of movies this year actually and I've enjoyed seeing them in the theater the tearjerker for us that I love so much seeing uh with my son and his dad was we watched the movie dog with Channing Tatum. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was a perfect movie. It was so beautiful. It was fantastic. It was funny. It was dramatic. It was endearing. It just you know did everything for me a movie needed to do. And it was not a hundred million dollars to me. Yeah. Although I'm sure a big part of that budget with, was uh, was a salary to uh, to Channing Tatum and the dog. I hope the dog got paid well. The dog was fantastic. <laughs> I'm sure they took care of the dog, or at least there I... there's <laughs> probably more than one. It was you know the, the wolf pack <laughs> of dogs started. Of course. Yeah, no, it was great. I'm sure, and the dogs have their own trailer. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> as we as we say this, I'm working on a short with our dog, our family dog, called Dog Love, uh, which is my fun passion project because I do so much work and businessy stuff. That I'm like, I'm going to make some art, and so we're just having we're having a blast doing that.
1: You um, need to have a I'll, blast. It's so important to power all the businessy stuff with the passion stuff.
0: I know. Well, it, you know, we, we the, it all came out of the discovery that there are doggy GoPro harnesses. And we could clip this camera onto our onto our dog, you know, special unit, like on the top and on the front, the chest cam and everything. And it is it is hysterical. He's very fluffy. He's very floppy ears. And that camera that sits right between his shoulder blades just films him as he's running with his ears in the wind. I was like, okay, well, we're gonna make a movie now.
1: <laughs> all right, that's awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, here for here for the dog love. Here for the cat love. I love all the animals especially through pandemic, they all saw us through and, uh, we're, we're not as upset about the pandemic as we were. So yeah, that emotional therapy that our that our friends are four legged and otherwise bring us is it's huge
1: for a while. The best thing I could do for myself was take the dogs to the park and watch them run. And they were just so happy. Just the level of joy was like, I just need some of that.
0: Oh, you and I had a similar pandemic. I mean, me taking every day, I did not miss a day and like the hardest part of the pandemic for me was we got our puppy in the pandemic and after year one you know we're deep in what is it you know early 2021 and they closed the dog park to reseed it and I came up and the gate was shut and it was like oh it will be closed for the next month and I was like what <laughs> okay you and I off. Are- off of this, need to talk about Rancho Park. Doggy Social Hours gone.
1: <laughs> Rancho <Ranger laughs> Park. Doggy Social hour. All about Rancho Park.
0: <laughs> oh, Lee Jessup. I, I so appreciate you spending your your time with us today, your expertise. You're so insightful. You're so wise. How can people find you? Tell us how to re- how they can reach you.
1: Uh people can find me through my site, leejessup.com. Fairly simple. I'm also on Twitter, Lee Z Jessup i believe um that that tracks um yeah but my site is uh, the best place to find me that's where everything that i do is available so there's one on one coaching there there's my uh screenwriter support group which is an online group that happens twice a month and uh, lastly my monthly online career coaching so everything i do is there plus a ton of blogs because apparently i can't shut up Um, i keep writing them and and finding more things to add to the mix um so yeah so if, if of interest by all means check it out
0: I love that. Thank you so much. And we will put links in the show notes uh, to find you. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute,
0: at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.